Well, Dad, what do you bet now that the ETF is going to quickly become old news, the next hype cycle is the happening. Everybody's going to be talking about the happening. I think we should introduce the happening since it only happens every four years. Maybe our right. listeners have forgotten what it entails. Right. And, and America is a new democracy. So every four years, the country votes to half one of its presidents. And uh, it's a very brutal process. <laughs> <laughs> few survivors. I mean, it is weird that the happening is timed with the election cycle for the U.S. presidency, right? Like, isn't that just kind of odd? Did Satoshi do that on purpose? What's going on is that there's always this issue when you're creating a money of who gets the money first, because in the past, coins were minted at mints. And so the mint uh, has to sell the coins into the real economy. Uh, usually it's a government mint, so they buy goods for the government or pay their military. And then those uh, recipients of the coins directly from the mint, then they go and they spend these coins. But the thing is, the money supply, it increases like a wave, right? Like water moving through a system. If you get the money first, you get to buy things at old prices, at like lower prices that were in equilibrium before this new money arrived. And as a result, if you get the money first, this is called the Cantillion effect, you get to buy at cheaper prices than people who get the money later because prices slowly adjust upwards because there's this influx of new monetary units and therefore the price per a fixed amount of goods in the world has to increase because there are new monetary units coming in. And so with Bitcoin, the problem is, well, how do, you, how do we inject supply into the system in a fair way? And Satoshi identified that miners was a relatively fair way to inject new Bitcoin supply because mining turned out to be a commodity business. In the absence of investment, miners basically have to sell most of the Bitcoin they mine to cover their costs. And mining is a service for the Bitcoin network because it's the process by which we confirm and validate transactions or, or confirm transactions. But in order for Bitcoin to reach a roughly 21 million hard cap, and I say roughly because I think it approaches, the supply approaches 21 million, but it never touches it. And there are also some unspent uh, block rewards and, uh, and some you know, burned coins. And so the supply will never really be 21 million. Basically, the amount of Bitcoin issued in these Coinbase transactions, these uh, block, uh, what is the term for a miner's block? Is it just a Coinbase? Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah, or you know, when they get the reward is usually what I say. Right. And so these Coinbase transactions that include uh, new Bitcoin or, or, or Bitcoin that are being issued according to the schedule, these block subsidies of new Bitcoin, they need to go down over time so that there isn't constant inflation. And that happens every 400,000 blocks, which is roughly every four years. Do I have that right? I feel like I'm suddenly not sure. Every tw uh, 210,000 blocks. Every 210,000 blocks. I've been wrong about that forever. Okay. So every 210,000 blocks, the mining subsidy is cut in half. And so it started at 50 Bitcoin, then was cut to 25, then to 12.25. The current subsidy is 6.25. And after the next happening in 110 days, roughly, we're going to have 3.125 yada yada Bitcoin per new block. Yeah, that is tight. That is really tight. Um, And I, I'm, a, I'm such an OG. I can say I was mining Bitcoin back when you were getting 50 Bitcoin rewards at a time. Like I remember I went on, I went on a podcast and I think I, I just, just sort of nonchalantly dropped that I was, I had mined Bitcoin, 50 Bitcoin in the first week or two of mining or something like that. And I must've been on CPUs mostly, probably multiple machines. So if you think about going from that to 3.125 Bitcoin, that that I mean, that seems like we're going to see some of these companies fall apart because these are businesses that have large run costs now that are doing the mining. I think that over time, the happening matters less because we've already issued over 90% of the Bitcoin supply and the 95% supply issuance mark is estimated to be in November 2025. So the amount of supply that has yet to be issued is much smaller relative to the amount of Bitcoin in circulation. And so I think that over time, this happening shock doesn't necessarily result in the price pumps that we've seen in the past. At the same time, the dynamics of the halvening mean that if demand for Bitcoin remains constant over time, like as long as it doesn't decrease, 
the price of Bitcoin will mathematically increase due to the supply dynamics of halvenings. And that's really interesting. I mean, that's, you know, there's never been a an instrument like that in the past. And if I were a BlackRock salesman trying to sell ETFs, this halvening would be a fantastic sales tool. Absolutely. You know, get in, price is low. It's at a, it's at a pre-halvening price right now. Well, what's the halvening? Well, you see uh, the mining issuance is going to be cut in half. So there's even going to be less supply of this already very scarce asset. So if you can get exposure to that just by buying our totally regulated and safe ETF. Sells itself, doesn't it? It definitely does. Very cool. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 12th, 2024. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with... Who, me? You know who I am. It's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. On today's show, we're going to discuss the launch of several Bitcoin ETFs in the US, what happened, what the takeaways in the first few days of trading are. Shinobi posted an article on Jevons Paradox in Bitcoin Magazine, which is an interesting economic observation about how increasing the efficiency of something can actually increase demand, which also increases price. And so that's not the obvious outcome for increasing efficiency. Increasing efficiency is often associated with lowering price and how that observation ties into our model of Bitcoin scaling and things like BRC20 and ordinals, which are clogging up the chain. In privacy, there's been a disclosure vulnerability on graphene OS. Forensic companies seem to be fingerprinting Android phones. How does that affect our favorite privacy-focused Android operating system? In Bitcoin education, Bitcoin Optech 238 covers lightning anchors, LN symmetry, and some interesting observations and thoughts around endogenous, exogenous, and out-of-band fees and their incentives on Bitcoin. I think that's some really deep thinking. And then we have some feedback and boosts, and that's our show. Well, how about that? Episode 119, and it's our ETFs are here episode. After what feels like 73 years of wondering what might happen when the ETF arrives, I joke, but I remember it really heating up when we were in El Salvador. As we were leaving to go to El Salvador and in El Salvador, the news of BlackRock's ETF was really kind of being absorbed by the community there. And it was nothing but speculation since then. And then we, uh, well, we finally had it happen after a beclowning leak on the SEC's Twitter account where they didn't have two-factor authentication enabled. Somebody tweeted, what looked very official with Gary's face on there and a quote and all of that, that the SEC had approved the Bitcoin ETFs. But of course, it was a day early and we were all kind of, the rumors were really spreading by then. So we kind of were expecting when it was going to happen. And that wasn't when we were expecting it. It was a day early. And that must have been a market manipulation attack where someone took a long Bitcoin position and then tweeted some good news from a hacked account and then sold that price pump, presumably. Do you think that's what happened? It, it must have been. It, um, the Also, the PDF, the actual approval uh, on the day leaked a couple hours early too. Somebody leaked that PDF early. The SEC pulled it down off their website, but somebody published it on the SEC.gov website early. And then by then the internet had it. I mean, it wasn't so, necessarily a leak. It could have just been... Been a mistake. Yeah. But so could have the tweet. But the conclusion is that the Twitter account was hacked, not that it was a mistake. That, that, is the, that seems to be t- t- the, Twitter con- the Twitter team conclusion and what the SEC has said you know, very, very clearly. Either way, a clowning introduction, of course. Of course, Bitcoin has to have something like this happen. And the whole media was buzz. So the tech press, of course, covers the SEC account getting hacked and Bitcoin chaos. It dropped like $1,000. Can't be bothered to cover the actual release and approval of the ETF the next day. So then Gary actually and the SEC approve. Gary was essentially the deciding vote. If you look at the brief from the SEC, there was a couple of votes against approving this ET- these ETFs. And if Gary had voted no, it wouldn't have made it through. And what was the rationale for not approving them, given that there was a court order from the D.C. Circuit? Uh, they're bought and paid for. <laughs> That's the rationale. <laughs> bought and paid for. That the SEC is now filled with politicians who are thinking more about their future political careers and their bank accounts than they are about regulating in safe markets is what the answer is. Uh, But, you know, unsafe, volatile, things like that. Um, So that gets through. And the first day, pretty good, Dad. Pretty good as far as an ETF goes. I think it's probably one of, I don't know for sure, but I think it's being considered one of the most successful ETF launches in terms of in and out flows. And who is Eric Balkunas? Because he has some interesting charts from Bloomberg Intelligence that kind of compares the volume, notional, and number of trades. You know, we should really give Eric and James, both of them, uh, traditional mainstream media reporters that just crush the reporting 
all the way from the beginning of this thing. Well, and right, you know, in the face of other analysts saying they were wrong, they would continue to 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 release details. And Eric tweets, you know, have been spot on the entire time. And uh, he compared it to the big boys out there, like just the volume on the QQQ and SPY, which are some of the biggest ETFs in the world. And the new Bitcoin ETFs were holding their own against QQQ and and the SPY ETFs in you know in number of trades and shares. It's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. The difference is that the notional volume traded of the Bitcoin spot ETFs is very small compared to the S&P 500 and Invesco QQQ. And I think that speaks to the fact that when an ETF is launched, there's a bunch of investors who are trying to get exposure in these assets in less efficient vehicles. And so when the S&P 500 ETF launched, everyone already owned the S&P 500, but they were indexing it themselves. So the ETF was more efficient. So they sold their individually held shares and they bought the ETF and they saved money on management fees and costs, etc. But Bitcoin is still not really held by too many people. It's still a relatively small asset. And so the notional would be very small for a Bitcoin ETF because there aren't that many people rebalancing out of inefficient grayscale Bitcoin trust-like instruments that are holding Bitcoin and then buying the ETF. Instead, this is mostly new money coming into Bitcoin. I think that's the conclusion. So I want to talk about day one from a Bitcoiner perspective. I was really concerned, sort of silly now looking back at it, a very high on-chain fees. I don't know. I was expecting the volatility that we're seeing today as we record, I was expecting on day one. So whenever volatility goes up, I expect on-chain fees to go up. And so the night before the ETF launch, I was like consolidating transactions and (laughs) doing all that stuff. And then I, I left mempool up from my node. And I, when I got up in the morning, I woke up my screen and had mempool on one of my monitors and the fees were low. And even though the ETFs were trading, nothing was happening on chain. And I thought, okay, right. Well, well, of course, right? Because the ETF is a way to get exposure off chain, right? I mean, this is a custodial way to get exposure to Bitcoin price. So actually, in a way, it removes on chain fee pressure, right? Day to day, for sure, it's it's going to remove on chain fee pressure for people that just are just buying Bitcoin for price exposure. But the reason why I expected some fee activity is I thought these were going to have to start seeding these funds or, you know, as people bought shares, I thought they would have to start buying Bitcoin. And so I thought we'd start seeing basically large purchases, chunks of large purchases just start driving fees up. But that didn't materialize during the day. If the Bitcoin that's being traded is already inside Coinbase custody, then it's just internal ledger right. changes in the Coinbase custody it's, SQL database. So it doesn't actually it. touch the Bitcoin blockchain. You got it. That's what's happening all day. And then after the market closed, mempool activity did start shooting up. And I started talking about it with our matrix chat room. I'm like, oh, look at the mempool activity. What's going on with mempool? All of a sudden mempool is going crazy. And then a little bit after that, we started seeing large flows to exchanges and in between exchanges. And, you know, uh, GBTC moved like 200 million Bitcoin at USD worth of Bitcoin to Coinbase to sell. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on this. I'd like to know if this is how it works, Dad. But my understanding is they arbed the banks or like, you know, the BlackRock ETF manager, whoever's managing the ETF, they arbed during the day. And then the actual purchases of the underlying asset, in this case, Bitcoin, they do that after the day, I guess, after the purchases are done, the market's closed for the day. Then they go commit the funds they need and make the Bitcoin purchase or transfers or move them to the to the exchange to sell. But they're not they're not funding the ETF during the day. They're doing it and they're they're kind of settling end of day after the market closes. And so you start to see a spike of on-chain activity, not huge, but you do see, at least yesterday, we saw a big spike of on-chain activity after the market closed as these guys sort of settled out or moved things to the exchange to, to convert to cash or whatever. But also, if you want to trade Bitcoin during the day and you're a professional trader, you can buy and sell the ETF. But when trading hours are closed, now you might be more incentivized to try and trade on-chain, right? So it's like when the ETF is closed, some of the activity moves to on-chain then. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, this is sort of funny just for Bitcoin. As a Bitcoiner, I think this part's really funny. Today, Fridays, we record. It's the last day this thing trades for three days because then it's a bank holiday on Monday and it's the weekend. So like this Bitcoin product is just untradeable for three days. The price could do anything. Like we're going into, we're currently sliding a bit. And if we go into a Friday on a slide, sometimes it slides the entire weekend. You know, not always, but sometimes it just keeps on sliding. (laughs) And if Monday's closed, it's three days of sliding. Then this thing opens up and all these noobs jumped in after, and then then the market closes and they can't get out. And this thing drops four or $5,000 on them. I just think it's kind of hilarious. Like you just took this apex predator that could be traded 24 seven at a moment's notice. And and now you're locked up in the, 
these custodial ETFs that you can't do anything with while the market slides. It is quite ironic because in so many ways, the ETF is a step backwards. And Gary Gensler was emphasizing that as he sort of tried to defend the SEC's approval of a Bitcoin ETF from critics by saying, listen, we're just following the legal guidance and we've thought about this for a long time, while at the same time still saying that the crypto space is full of scams and frauds, which is true, but also that Satoshi would not have liked a Bitcoin ETF because it represents centralization. And so in many ways, the creation of a Bitcoin ETF is a negative for Bitcoin, seemed to be his insinuation. Gary's playing dirty today. That's, you know, all the other stuff that's standard fare from Gary. But then to take a Satoshi wouldn't have liked the ETF. And now, and he made the point twice in a CNBC interview. And now Bitcoin is more centralized. This is a loss for Bitcoiners. That's him just twisting the knife. And I think he has to, because our understanding is that Gary wants to be the secretary of the U.S. Treasury at some point in his career. And that's currently an appointment that he needs the support of Democratic politicians like Elizabeth Warren to get there. While at the same time, he was the SEC commissioner who who was presiding over the approval of a Bitcoin ETF, which Senator Warren has called the SEC wrong on the law for approving a Bitcoin ETF, when the only reason they did it was because they lost a court case. What's what's, what's so great about Liz is I loved it when, remember when just a, like a year ago, Liz was going after j for raising the rates because that was hurting the middle class and that he needed to lower rates and that he was harming the middle class if he didn't lower rates. But of course, the reason rates were going up is he was trying to, as best he could, manage inflation. Inflation steals the life energy, literally steals the life work from the middle class. High inflation is death to family wealth in the middle class, which would be devastating to the middle class, which we absolutely want inflation down. But she was on a rampage to get him to stop. Just like she's it's like she flips. She lives in a bizarre world where she flips things like in this, where she says that Gensler's wrong on the law when it was the law and following the law that forced him to this position, which he even says in the CNBC interview. But she somehow flips it around in her head in some sort of bizarre world. And I just find that to be absolutely fascinating because somehow it gains traction. And so here's Gary trying to walk the line, really twisting the knife on Bitcoin being more centralized, which is ridiculous. These are buyers. They're buyers of Bitcoin. What what is it? What 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 will be an attack on centralization, which will absolutely be an attack on centralization, is if they go after your own wallets, if they go after what they call self-hosted wallets. Now that that will be a dying day for Bitcoin centralization, especially if nodes are included in that Wait, suite. Centralization that, or decentralization? You keep central that would be well be, be death for sorry, yeah. It'd be death for decentralization and it would be a massive centralization. That would be honestly, then Gary would be right. But in this scenario, this is just FUD and meaning because these these banks, they're not they're not running nodes. They're not running mining operations. They're not they're just buying Bitcoin and selling Bitcoin at larger scales than we plebs can. That's what they're doing. This isn't centralization. Well, there are custodians who are running nodes and interacting with the blockchain and they are accumulating large amounts of Bitcoin on behalf of their institutional and private clients. And this Bitcoin can be regulated. Well, there's the network, which I think is the part that is important is decentralized. And then there's the asset. And I think people can do whatever they want with the asset. I don't have a problem with that. The network remains fully decentralized. Right. But the health of the network is also related to what's going on with the asset in some respect, because if 99% of Bitcoin ends up in regulated custodians, then, well, those custodians now have the ability to manipulate the price because they can issue new shares and it's hard to validate. What if 90% of the Bitcoin ends up in hodler wallets that lose their keys? I mean, what if 90% ends up in wallets that never move the coin ever? Right. I mean, that might also be a problem because if on-chain activity falls off a cliff and mining is no longer a viable business, mining operations shut down, the difficulty adjustment on-chain falls, and now it might be easier to attack the network that's where I think the problem is. That kind of, that's... Here's the thing. What really kills Bitcoin? Like, how do you actually kill Bitcoin? Lack of interest kills Bitcoin. 
Like if people just move on, that's how Bitcoin dies. And is that going to happen? Obviously not, in my opinion, because to kill Bitcoin, what you have to do is solve very complex, politically impossible issues with the financial system and the monetary system so that we can move into a world where monetary constraints are not bringing down growth. And you need trust in a centralized trust-based system of institutions and finance. So if you think that institutional trust is increasing and sort of politically neutral, nuanced policy around economics and finance is trending up, then I think Bitcoin is a bad buy. But I believe that most people would agree with me when I say that trust in institutions is falling and policy with regards to economics and finance is not getting smarter and more nuanced and more thoughtful. It's getting more captured by moneyed interests and short-term political incentives. So basically, Bitcoin is great if you are a little bit worried about the directions of politics and you're a little bit worried about the directions of economic policy and you're a little bit worried about things in general, then Bitcoin is an obvious hedge to all of that because it's a permissionless system of computers that allow you to make transactions based on a pre-known set of rules with no shotgun KYC or, or gotchas. And it's completely outside of these entities that are becoming less and less reliable over time, both politically and legally, I would say. I think we're going to look back at this as we just bought ourselves years of scaling. So I think it's Bitcoiners are so funny. It's a lot like Linux users. It's like they can they can be freaked out about a problem and the solution comes along and they hate the solution. And it I just find it so funny. Really, what's going to happen now? Okay, let's say BlackRock. Say say they say they managed to even stack as much as Sailor or more. They have one or two percent of the supply. That isn't going to change the fact that applications like Strike and the Cash App and many others are still going to be built on an open network that allows the transfer of value at low cost. That is a massive innovation in the finance space, and it's going to enable entire businesses to exist that didn't like Strike that haven't existed at the level they can exist. And I think that kind of stuff doesn't slow down one bit. And the ability for you and I, as long as they don't ban self-hosted wallets, we're still going to be participating on chain. These types of businesses are still going to be having an on-chain footprint. There's going to be lots of activity. The Bitcoin network is going to be very, very, very busy, even if 80% of the public ends up hodling via an ETF. The Bitcoin blockchain is still going to be busier than we can manage, and the fees are going to be bonkers in a few years. And so with a lot of this activity happening at the ETF layer, that's for folks that don't care about the underlying value of the asset. They don't care about the fundamentals of Bitcoin or the properties of the Bitcoin network. They just want exposure to the price. They care about a diversified portfolio. This is absolutely analogous to gold ETFs and gold certificates in the past. These are instruments that you can use to diversify your financial portfolio. And because portfolios are the way that the majority of Americans save, at least, I think that Europeans tend to save more in their pensions, which are government guaranteed. And, you know, there's a lot of big question marks around that. But in the U.S., people with wealth save via a diversified portfolio of financial assets and perhaps real estate assets. And both financial assets and real estate are heavily regulated, and you are exposed to changes in tax policy and law. And so holding the underlying Bitcoin asset hardens you against changes in policy that disadvantage you. It's much more of a hedge against the entire system, too. You know, you have that. You have both. Not only do you have exposure to the network properties, you have direct asset control, but you also have the hedge properties that Bitcoin natively presents that you don't get when you have the ETF. If there is an attack in the future against unregulated Bitcoin, what is it going to look like? Well, first of all, you're going to discover that getting Bitcoin off of custodial platforms is going to get much more difficult. You'll have to provide more information, more selfies, more scans of your documents, that sort of thing. The next step, I think, would be governments working with regulated Bitcoin sellers like exchanges to compile KYC data and figure out who's made transfers off of these regulated platforms into self-custody. And then you probably get nasty letters in the mail 
from your tax authority saying, hey, listen, we see that you're probably holding Bitcoin in your own wallet and uh, you know we need you to confirm those balances or something like that. So I think there is kind of a, a process here where self-custodial wallets will be identified, their balances confirmed, and then if you participate in that compliance process, eventually you may receive a guidance that actually this is probably illegal and dangerous to hold yourself. Why don't you send it into a custodian or something like that? Okay, so... That's a pretty dystopian scenario. And I, I don't know if you're, are you saying you think that's exactly what's going to happen? Or are you saying this is a probable possibility? I mean, it's a, it's a possibility. I don't know. Obviously, we don't know if something like that will happen. But here's the thing. This process requires a lot of self-compliance. This is very different than, as you mentioned on Coder Radio, a former Amazon employee has a dispute with the company and Amazon works with their bank to lock them out of their bank accounts for years. You know, that can just happen to you. With compliance around a self-custodied Bitcoin wallet, you have to agree. You Like, they don't have the ability to reach into your wallet and claw out your Bitcoin. No one can do that except you if you've protected your private key. And so this just gives you leverage. You can choose to comply. You can think about this. It's not something that will just happen to you. And I, you know, I think for normies who don't hold Bitcoin and, you know, are sort of suspicious of it, this is like maybe a little esoteric. It's hard to understand or something. But I think this is very different because in the past, when, at least in the US, when the government has been under serious financial pressure, there have been radical changes in law around financial assets that have severely reduced the amount of wealth people control, and they had no recourse. And that was because, like in the 1930s, when Roosevelt confiscated private gold holdings in the US and then devalued the dollar, most gold was held in repositories and with banks at that point. So it was relatively easy to regulate and seize that wealth. With self-custodied Bitcoin, you can't seize it. You have to go through a process to sort of identify people's Bitcoin and then put legal pressure on them to turn it over or to pay punitive taxes on it or something like that. Well, if you don't like those policies, you can leave. You can choose not to comply. And there may be consequences. Or what I think is that I think policies like that would be very short-lived. Because when do you go after Bitcoin as a government? You go after Bitcoin when things are really bad, when you're desperate for revenue, when your financial system is unstable and you're looking for scapegoats and people are using Bitcoin to blast a hole through the gated exit of your financial system and asset prices are crashing and there's chaos. So I think that self-custodied Bitcoin is just a great idea for anyone who shares any of the concerns we've outlined here. And I think that the ETF is a great idea for anyone who doesn't have Bitcoin exposure and wants to have a more balanced financial portfolio with exposure to the upside of Bitcoin. That's fair. I want to steal man a little further and tell me if you think I'm crazy. Yes. Yes. I think if you could make an argument that if you're absolutely exhausted by the endless KYC process each one of these different platforms requires, maybe you already have a brokerage account with your existing financial institution, so you've already KYC'd. And you want to use Bitcoin not as a mechanism to ensure sovereignty, but you want to use it as an investment for maybe a down payment on a car or a house or repair work, or maybe you just want to you know, get some money back. I could see somebody who's got one to three year, one to four year kind of time horizons that doesn't want to deal a lot with it, already has the brokerage account, already has the money there, move it into Bitcoin, let it sit there for a couple of years, pull it out towards the top, get the cash that you were just going to get out of it anyways, never have to deal with any of the self-custody aspects. I mean, I can see that as a, even as a Bitcoiner who's going to have the self-custody stash, I could see maybe I have like a liquid Bitcoin stash that maybe is in the ETF that I cash out from time to time. I, I don't know. I don't, that's not really my style, but I'm just trying to steal man where I, I, I know that finances are really personal for everybody. And I don't want somebody listening to this thinking that we're judging you for buying one of these ETFs. They're all just financial tools. And I, I, I'm trying to think, I think there's probably a role out there. And if you could think of a, you know, kind of a Bitcoiner first strategy for how you would properly use an ETF like this, boost in and let us know because I'm not opposed to it. And I'm, I'm still, I haven't made my decision yet, but I'm considering like recommending the Bitwise ETF to 
friends and family that do ask me about it, like I'm not going to go around and sell it. But like if mom or dad or aunt or uncle or whatever comes to me and says, hey, you know, I know you know about Bitcoin. What do you think about one of these ETFs? I I think I would actually say, yeah, go for it. Go for the Bitwise one is what I think I'd say right now. I don't know if it's going to be the winner in the end. But do you think I'm crazy? No, I mean, I think this would be great for my mom, for my dad, because this is a way that they could increase their the value of their savings. And I don't think that that's a bad thing because they were never going to hold Bitcoin in self-custody. It's very difficult, especially if you didn't grow up with the internet and this all seems a little complicated and scary. You have to invest time and attention and you need a certain amount of self-confidence to go ahead and do that. It's just funny because it's kind of one of the things that drew me to Bitcoin was this that I could I could be in control of it. I could have it again when we started taking boosts. I used to talk about this more. But one of the most visceral reactions I had to start when we accepted boosts was that is sitting on my land right there. Like that's my node. Like those messages are sitting right there in that database. That node is processing these transactions. It felt like I really I really had more physical like connection with the audience because there was it was getting processed and stored right here on this node right it, i mean that's that's a, that was a huge draw for me but i think you're right dad i think for some people it's it's the opposite it's this massively overwhelming complex problem how do i solve self custody and i think we as bitcoiners have made it sound really scary and really dangerous cuz people have been burned so many times and i think we scare people away from it well think about linux you were drawn to linux because you could own your computer for the first time but why are most people using linux and of course i'm talking about android i'm talking about you know people who watch netflix on their computer they use it because it's convenient it's cheaper and they don't even know what it is on the back end it just solves a problem for them that's the etf customer the etf solves the problem of how do you get more bang for your buck of savings well you diversify into a bitcoin etf and now your portfolio performs better and you have more money in your retirement yeah it's definitely gonna do better than your savings account <laughs> so that's for sure <laughs> yeah all right well so now we're uh, you know here we are not bad. Some of these are interesting. The reason why I mentioned the Bitwise one is because they've committed to kicking back 10% of their profit to different Bitcoin developers for the next 10 years. And what I like about their method is instead of them picking the winners and losers, they're just giving it to three different organizations who have already been doing this for years, already have the plumbing, have a track record. And uh, that's something that I think is a little bit better than we've seen generally in free software development. Remember, this is a free software project that just is now being traded as an ETF. And Vanek also is kicking back uh, 5% to develop. We'll see. But on the subject of KYC and sort of invasive controls on your financial activity, there was a post on No BS Bitcoin about the Financial Conduct Authority, which is a UK regulator that I guess is sort of consumer focused. So they're regulating, I guess, uh, maybe betting companies and companies that allow you to buy and sell Bitcoin. And it seems that they have some policies that uh, really rub Bitcoiners the wrong way. So the FCA has classified Bitcoin as a restricted mass market product. So before you can buy or sell Bitcoin, maybe buy, I guess, on a fintech app or on an exchange in the UK, you have to add some customer frictions. You have to fill out a questionnaire. You have to say if you're a restricted investor or you're a high net worth investor. And so if you're not earning more than £100,000 annually, and my understanding is that very few people in the UK earn more than £100,000 annually. I think that doctors in London earn between twenty dollars and £40,000 a year. So, I mean, these are doctors and they're you know, it sounds like chump change, right? Basically, if you're not very wealthy in the UK, you're not supposed to be able to invest more than 10% of your assets in Bitcoin. So, I mean, this just sounds incredibly condescending and uh, restricting your ability to use your money the way you'd like. And obviously, the alternative to this is peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchange, which is generally more complex and comes with additional you know, bandwidth. You have to think about a, quite a few different things to use a peer-to-peer exchange. So I, do, I think it's getting much better. The dichotomy, right, between the UK and the US right now, where, you know, I just opened up my banking app the, the day the ETF launched and went in and looked at the ETFs. And sure enough, there were all the Bitcoin ETFs. And I could have just 
bought any of them right then and there. And over in the UK, now, if you're on Coinbase or Gemini or Revolut or a, a lot of the popular ones over there, there's this whole question and answer system you have to go through that is just this in-depth KYC process that makes our KYC seem light, which is wild since we're scanning our face and sending them poop samples. And they managed to make it even more egregious over there. And so like when you talk about tightening the exits down, this really feels like an actual in real life example of how they close the exits and tighten it all down. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just incredibly condescending. And the the idea that the general public is just sort of ignorant fools who are going to get fleeced or something, and you need to put these guardrails around what they're allowed to do with their money. It's very distasteful in my view. Not to be this guy, because I know we have listeners over there and I love you, and I'd love to know your input on this boost in. But what does it say about the people? I mean, that they let them... I mean, I know our politicians are crap too, but you're right. This is such a nanny state condescending way to say, if you're not rich enough, then you don't even get to buy any of this. Like, you just, you can't be trusted. I want to just step up for the UK here. You have to understand, the UK has not had a general election for like eight years. So remember that whole Brexit thing, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, all this drama? The UK public was not voting in any of this process. They have a parliamentary system. So they don't have regular general elections. Their political process is much more controlled by the politicians that are elected to represent them. Wow. Well, look at this because look at the look what's happening to them while they're, they're boi- getting boiled alive by inflation over there, boiled alive by the war in Ukraine. And this is just at, also hurting them at the complete other end. And you're telling me they've got no representation to do anything about it. Well, limited, limited representation. That's a that's a they're really there. So they're just it makes you wonder, like, if we'd be seeing more of this here in the States, if they could get away with it. Well, I think if the U.S. is under more financial pressure, you'll see responses to that in terms of repressing exits, you know, kind trying to control people's ability to insulate themselves from monetary and fiscal policy. Again, I'd love to have some boots on the ground reporting what happens. So this goes into effect uh, January 9th or something like that, right? What happens if you were like a, a whole coiner and you had a, like a whole coin somewhere and now depending on your net worth, even though you may own a whole coin, Coinbase or Gemini, like they they put total trading limits on how much you can sell, how much you can buy, how much you can move. And it might be considerably less than the amount you're storing or have or own already. But these limits are just now in place, even though you may have multiple Bitcoin, perhaps. Like, how does that work? How can they do that? Is somebody explain to me how it works for people that already have a stash. I just, I, I can't wrap my noodle around it. Sounds like we need to get Joe on the show to explain all of this to us. Yeah, I think he has some, some Bitcoin. You might know. Yeah, somebody out there that's got some coins over there in that neck of the woods. Boost it and tell me how this works. So one of our favorite Bitcoin writers, Shinobi, who's now writing for Bitcoin Magazine, has a new piece on Jevons Paradox. And I think the most famous example is gasoline and cars. And the idea is that if you increase the fuel efficiency of cars, let's say cars suddenly become twice as efficient at using gasoline, then the cost of travel has been cut in half. But if people travel more as the cost of travel falls, this can actually increase the net demand for fuel. And so even though you would you would say, okay, if our amount of fuel is limited, so if we increase the efficiency of cars, we won't need to drill for more oil. But actually, you've made cars so much more useful that there's a net increase in demand, and so demand for oil surges. And so the idea is that increases in efficiency don't necessarily hurt the price of the thing that's getting more efficient. In fact, they might actually support the price of this thing going forward because now it's so much more useful. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that definitely tracks. And if gas prices are lower, just to go with your example, I'm road tripping, man. And if gas prices are low enough, I'm taking the RV and I'm taking the car. And I think this directly applies to Bitcoin because during the block size war, many big blockers had the view that if you use things like Lightning to essentially do off-chain transactions, you're stealing money from miners. You're actually undermining the game theory of Bitcoin mining and its security model. But they didn't understand Jevons' paradox because by moving transactions off-chain, by by giving this ability to sort of leverage a single on-chain transaction into many smaller transactions, Bitcoin became 
much more efficient. And fees are, on average, much higher than they were during the era of the block size wars. And so Bitcoin and its layered scaling approach is kind of another perfect example of Jevons' paradox, where developments in Bitcoin technology that enable layer two solutions have increased the efficiency of on-chain Bitcoin. So now I don't have to spend more in fees by doing on-chain transactions because I can do a single transaction to open a lightning channel. But in aggregate, so many people are opening lightning channels that fees on chain are rising. So you're saying when we have major breakthroughs that will make it cheaper to transact Bitcoin, long-term, it will mean there's more Bitcoin adoption. That, that tracks, that tracks. Right, and so long-term, fees will still go up because there's going to be more adoption. And it's not like there is a free transfer solution. Engineering solutions always have a cost. So there's no magic technology that makes Bitcoin free to transact with. There's always going to be a cost. It's just becoming much more efficient. But that efficiency is not, you know, 100%. It means that there's still going to be an on-chain transaction at some point. And so as more people use Bitcoin, even on higher layers, there's going to be more on-chain transaction and fees are going to go up. So I think that this opinion piece is an interesting view on validating Bitcoin's scaling approach, on identifying that the big blockers were clearly wrong. And that doesn't mean there's not going to be a block size increase in Bitcoin's future. I mean, if storage gets even cheaper and bandwidth continues to improve and the Bitcoin network is sufficiently hardened, maybe we could have bigger blocks. Who knows? But I think it's a good read because if you've ever thought about Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin security in terms of mining incentives, I think this is a good argument to suggest that miners are not worried about layer two solutions stealing their fees. Layer two solutions means more adoption of the underlying blockchain, which drives miner revenue and supports security on the Bitcoin blockchain. You like to hear that. You want them to do well. Do we want to chat about this issue in Graphene OS? I know it's not directly Bitcoin, but I know there's plenty of Bitcoiners out there using Graphene OS. Well, I want you to also tell me how to enable CarPlay on Graphene because I couldn't figure it out after the update. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So you have the latest version, right? You have to have the latest version installed. And and then they have, I think it's like um, one of their apps. I forget. You go in there. They have this thing called apps. Are you familiar with their little apps app? And then you go in there and Android Auto is in there. And then there's some dependencies you have to make sure you have installed. And then you got it. Android Auto on Graphene OS. Oh, I see it right there. Mm -hmm. There we go. So I guess the team have uncovered a vulnerability in Android smartphones that is being used today out in the wild by digital forensics companies. So Graphene OS team found it, but I believe this actually applies to Android in general because of how it works. So the exploit is something to do with the fast boot firmware. And I imagine not all the Android phones use this, but the flaw in there allows a threat actor to bypass the requirements needed to perform a RAM dump on the device. So they get access to a RAM dump when they shouldn't be able to. Now, so I think they may have to have physical access to your phone to do this. And then once they have the RAM dump, the threat actor can then brute force a device and some of its encryption keys that remain in memory. So the encryption keys can remain in memory when the device is active if you capture it in an unlocked state, which is what they call the after first unlock. So the system's rebooted after the first unlock, the encryption keys for the disk and whatnot are stored in RAM. So that way Android gets access to these things. If they can capture your phone in its after first unlock state, it can be locked again. But if it's been unlocked once after a reboot, they can do a RAM dump. If they get that RAM dump, they can then get the key and they can start to decrypt the device's content. And they can do that from an image. So if they can get access to the phone for a brief moment in time, they can do the dump and image it. And then they can perform that attack offline, which is actually how they do it. And they just leave it in this offline unlocked state. Um, and then doing this, they can completely bypass the secure element protections that the Pixel brings uh, to protect brute forcing in memory stuff. Um, now, again, it's not exactly a Graphene OS problem. Graphene OS does not necessarily have a native solution to this, but there's like workarounds that are kind of built into Graphene OS you can use. One of them, silly, but if you are concerned about this, enable automatic reboots after a set amount of inactivity, because then that just makes this impossible. Also, I recommend if you're using Bitcoin apps on your Graphene OS device, you should probably explore the user profile functionality. It's something I need to do more of. Because when you close out of that profile, the encryption key is then removed from memory. So if you switch to a specific profile to do your Bitcoin banking, and then you close out of that, my current understanding is the encryption keys will then be removed from memory and stored back in the secure element. 
So that's another way where you could be a little bit safer is by isolating that stuff into its own user profile. Uh, Graphene OS is also, they say, quote, close to providing a duress erasure feature. <laughs> oh, that would be great. So someone's like, put in the code to unlock your phone and you put in a code and then the phone's like self-destructing. I'd be down for that. I mean, that's great. But cold card does that. I mean, obviously you're going to get a beating after that, like a big beating, but that's cool. And I thought the iPhone had this, although for the life of me, I can't find it. Who want like some sort of emergency duress lockdown where it essentially just does a, you know, it wipes the memory or not, not, not a format of the device, but clear the keys, log me out like a for a reboot, do something that I can do from a key press. Because the scenario is, and this happened while I was traveling, a security agent wants to look at my phone. So I would like to be able to, while I'm getting it out of my pocket, hold down some buttons or click something five times while I'm handing it to them and have it just completely logged out. Hold on. I've never had a security agent look at my phone. What was going on? The security guy at the uh, airport wanted he wanted to see phones. In El Salvador? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Because Oh, yeah. I remember that. I was waiting so long at the gate. I was like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And uh, so I gave him the iPhone, you know, because uh, that was sort of my travel safe phone and it was fine and they didn't do, i don't think they did anything with it they also took our passport they took all that stuff and i just to me i thought in that moment uh, or you know like switch profiles to like some sort of dummy profile something like there could just be a physical tap i wish the graphing folks would do but i just wanted to put this out there as a psa because i think you and i both are using graphing os i think a lot of bitcoin are using graphing os it's a pretty good project i think they did some good work here exposing this vulnerability they do have like i said some automatic reboot stuff you can do the profile stuff there's some other things you can do there um, Graphene OS is kind of more secure by default in a lot of ways, like they'll zero out memory and things like that, but this isn't 100%. If they get access to your phone after it's been unlocked once, they can do that dump. So go shake it off over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. That's my podcast network over there. We just put out Coder Radio, the iPad Friend Zone episode, where we'll just tell you like it is with the new Apple Vision Pro. We'll break it down why it's basically going to get locked up in the iPad Friend Zone. Uh, and then if you want to try something totally new, I've been experimenting with JB's first official lit stream, you know, live item tag stream. And uh, we posted the results of that up there for some reason. You can go listen to that. Uh, and then... I have to give a hearty recommendation for Linux Unplugged 544, half the bits, double the pain. We finally, finally got to the 32-bit challenge, and it was brutal. It was more like Zombie Watch. So jupiterbroadcasting.com. Those were all solid episodes. I think I listened to that Lit Coder episode, and I was like, what is going on here? This is so different. I don't know what's going on. So clearly, Podverse didn't like tag it, clearly. I got to record like a little disclaimer at the beginning, because if you don't, if you're not there, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a test. It was super cool. It was like a radio show. There was all this live music. I was like, That's I felt I like I was it. jamming out. It was great. That's the Coder live stream pre-show. Yeah, I just, I just took the, what I did is I just took the Coder pre-show and just released it so that way I could start testing the feed. <laughs> Doesn't make a lot of sense out of context. Well, Bitcoin Optech Newsletter 284 had a really interesting discussion about lightning anchors and elements of the V3 transaction relay proposal. And I think that for me, the most interesting conversation was the first section about exogenous and endogenous fees and out-of-band fees. So endogenous fees would be your standard fee you pay for a Bitcoin transaction. You make a transaction, you assign a fee rate to it, and a miner mines it. But then sometimes the mempool fills up, your transaction is deprioritized, and now we have to make an exogenous fee transaction. So either a child pays for a parent or replace by fee. These are two options where you essentially make another transaction. So now you have at least two transactions in the mempool that are related. And this later transaction can only be mined if the earlier transaction is mined in the case of child pays for parent. RBF, I think, is a little cleaner because, you know, it effectively replaces the entire transaction. But there's an interesting incentive here that Peter Todd identified, where if you're using a lot of exogenous fees to mine transactions, so you're using a lot of child pays for parent, which I recently had to do, which was a real journey, you're actually incentivizing minor centralization. Well, what do you mean? What's going on? Because the Bitcoin protocol rewards each mining pool proportional to their hash rate, that means that a small miner, well, small, a mining pool with 10% of total hash rate has a 10% chance of capturing the next block fee, whereas a miner with 1% of hash rate only has 1%. So that means that a big miner, let's say who has 20 or 40 or something like that percent of hash rate, they can actually accept out-of-band fees because they're going to get 40% of the next blocks. So that means that they're likely to 
be able to promise you that if you pay them an out-of-band fee, they can mine a transaction in, say, the next six blocks or something like that in the next hour. Whereas a small miner cannot make those promises. So how does this relate to exogenous fees? How does this relate to child pays for parent? Well, if I'm a large miner, it's actually cheaper to pay me an out-of-bound transaction to mine your first transaction than using child pays for parent because we don't have to use block space. An out-of-band fee allows a low-cost transaction to get into the mempool when it logically shouldn't. And it saves on block space because instead of two transactions in the mempool, there's just one and an out-of-bound payment. But this out-of-bound payment rail is only available for larger miners, and therefore it makes them more profitable. It encourages centralization. So that's a really interesting observation that protocols like child pays for parent that allow you to sort of fee bump a transaction have this potential incentive of encouraging minor centralization and out-of-band fees. Has that ever occurred to you? No, but it does kind of seem logical that only the big boys would be able to offer that expedited service, right? I mean, that's how users will see it, is they're just paying for expedited service. And who who isn't fancy enough to want expedited service from time to time? There are some other interesting observations from Peter Todd here, including descriptions of pinning attacks in Lightning using ephemeral anchors. I don't feel confident enough to explain it, but I suggest that you check out the Optech newsletter. Really good stuff in there. This was a banger. Yeah, they're back. The new year has started and the Optech is packed. Uh, we'd like to know what you think about coverage, issues, all that kind of stuff. Get in touch. Bitcoin Dad Pod at ProtonMail.com. Hit us up on WebNX at Bitcoin Dad Pod on the Twitter or your best bet. Join the conversation. It's been a lot of fun as things have been developing. It's in our Matrix channel. Just get all the details in the show notes. You just need a client. Then you get in our Matrix channel and chat away with us. We got ones for general discussion and for uh, getting started kind of questions. Two different channels for twice the fun. And I did not see several of these boosts this week. So it looks like the Bitcoin dad node needs to be rebalanced again. So I will get on that after we read some baller boosts. And our baller in this episode was Age of Freeze 17, sending one, two, three, four, five sats. Spaceballs. With the message, Happy New Year, Dad and Chris. And Happy New Year to you too. Thank you, Mr. 17. Appreciate that. Appreciate the Spaceballs boost too. Nullifier comes in, feeling fired up with 10,000 sats. Bitcoin meetups are your civic duty. You know, I'm almost starting to get it, but I, I think I need to hear it a couple more times, but I'm, I'm getting it because it's like a local action thing. I think Nullifier, if you keep it up, I think I'm, you're going to get me fired up. I think I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start preaching it, but I'm just not quite there yet. I need to hear it a few more times. Well, thank you for the boost. And there is a Bitcoin meetup in Seattle on Thursday, January 25th at the Finney Ridge Center. It's a bit late, starts at 6.30 p.m. So Chris, if you want to come. Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of thing that I would do and then get stuck out there in the middle of like a Pacific Northwest ice blast and then completely think, why am I doing this in the dead of winter? What's the matter with me? There's actually a cot in my data center. You can sleep <laughs> in there. Now we're talking. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, Nullifier's got one more episode between then and now. I'm almost motivated. Well, I'll put a link to that meetup in the show notes. Rather not say, boosted in 5,000 sats with the message, I jump on the episodes as soon as they come out. Enjoy the laid back vibes on important issues. Well, thank you for the boost. And I'm glad that I sound more laid back than I feel. <laughs> uh, thank you, Senor Say. I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how you're liking the new Fountain 1.0. I've really, really been impressed. But there was a bit of a bug on Android recently where it... Uh, I would, um, my, my conspiracy bacon is that they're working on a new feature, some playback support to like reduce silences and reduce gaps in podcasts. And I think maybe it got turned on aggressively by default. And so I wonder if anybody out there got bit by that. You might as well, rather. Alec comes in, 10,000 sats. He writes, on the SBF thing, try not to fry too much bacon, but the feds needed to defang SBF and CZ for the spot ETF. Stamping out money flowing into political campaigns would have been an unfortunate side effect had they managed to avoid. You know, maybe, you know, maybe if the plan always was to go after SBF. I think uh, I, I tend to believe Halleck that SBF was going to be the big custody, was going to be the coin base of the situation where like 10 or whatever it is of the ETFs out of or eight or whatever it is are using Coinbase. I suspect it was going to be Sam and that fell apart and then it became Coinbase. Because if you've noticed, Coinbase and the SEC and, and most of DC, not always on the best terms. Uh, like you might recall Brian traveling over to DC and then nobody would see him. Nobody was willing to take a meeting with Brian. And the SEC has at times just completely denied responses to the point where Coinbase is 
now in a legal fight with the SEC. I don't think Coinbase was the first choice of any of the establishment. I suspect it was going to be Sam and FTX all along. But then it fell apart. But I don't know. What do you think, Halleck? Am I frying too much bacon? Could be. Thank you for the boost. Appreciate it. Thank you, Halleck. Now, our next boost comes from Barn Miner, and I can't read the entire... Oh, Oh. I've been looking forward to that all episode. (laughs) Should I just bleep it out? Yeah, yeah, go. I mean, you, you do you. You do what feels right. You know what? You're the Bitcoin dad. Okay. Well, our next boost is from Barn Miner, who sends in 10,000 sats with a message, switch from Fountain to Boost for Podcasting 2.0. I knew I was missing adding a show, catching back up. Well, thank you so much for the boost, for the amusing and non-family friendly username. And thanks for listening. I'm all about that. Barn Miner. Thank you. 10,000 sats. Breeze. You know what, Dad? It's been a minute since somebody came in from Breeze. So he says he switched to Fountain, but he boosted from Breeze? What's going on there, Barn? What I don't know. What is going on there? I miss the days of firing up Breeze and having my phone battery drop 20% and it become like a little heater in my hand. You know, in the winter, it could be nice. could be nice. It's negative five with the wind chill out there right now. Uh, and our last boost that's making it on air this week is from DPG. 3,333 sats. And he writes, from Castomatic. Hey, Dad and Chris, I have a more general economic question for you guys this week. I'm in my mid-20s and I'm looking to buy a house this year. But as you guys have talked about often, situation's pretty bleak. Do either of you have financial advice for Gen Z? Uh, the outlook for my cohort is souring. <laughs> I agree, dude. I agree. What do you think for somebody that wants to buy a house in the next year, Dad? Got any ideas? I mean, I think financial decisions are so personal that, you know, we, we couldn't say anything specifically. But in general, my understanding of how you go about buying a house in the US, I'm assuming, is you build up savings, usually in your brokerage account. And then as you approach the sort of time period where you want to buy a house, you start to sort of move funds from your kind of more volatile investments, which are, you know, used to be stock market ETFs, and into less volatile investments like bond ETFs or something like that. And I think that that common sense might not work anymore. You have to look specifically at the profile of these bond funds to see what the price of those funds will do if interest rates are cut suddenly or if they raise or or, or something to that effect. My sense is that the Fed is likely to cut interest rates this year, perhaps in the near future. And so that might mean that bond funds in the short term will increase in value and could be a short-term sort of money savings parking vehicle for funds that might go to the down payment of a house. But I honestly couldn't say for sure. That's just speculation. So I think in terms of the tactics of how to prepare that large chunk of change for a down payment, you know, I think you have to think about these sort of policy effects on whatever vehicle you're using to hold that down payment. If you mean on kind of a wider view on how you save in an environment of low growth and very high asset prices, I think Bitcoin is very good for that, obviously, sort of the theme of the show. In general, if you're Gen Z, like, what do you do with this economy? And uh, I honestly don't know. I think my advice years ago would have been the IT space looks really booming. That's probably going to be a place you want to be and work. You know, you can achieve relatively high salaries and, and compensation there. I don't think you'd claim that today, though. Right. There are a lot of layoffs in IT. We know that Twitch laid off 30% of their workforce recently. I think, you know, you know but deep, isn't DPG kind of the person I was just talking about that, you know, in a year or so would like a little extra cash to make a down payment. Now, we have no idea how these ETFs will perform over the next year. If there's a chance, there's probably some probable chance they perform well. It seems like DPG for this particular use case is kind of the ideal customer because he could even, depending on his bank, just use them to hold the ETF, the same bank he's going to get his house loan through. Like, you know, there's banks out there that will do that for you. And you already have the money in that financial institution. And when it comes time to make the down payment, it's all inside that same bank. You know, that could be a compelling option for somebody like DPG. We just obviously don't know how it's going to perform. That's true. At the same time, we're heading into a halvening and a potential bull market. So yeah, historically, this is probably a... This is probably a good bet. I mean, this time a year or two ago, for the last two years at this point, we would have been saying it's not a good bet. We would have said the price is going to go down. The only anomaly out there is recession and how hard recession. And if we hard recession, then liquidity is just going to be gone and nothing's going to be doing great. 
However, if we start to smell like a recession and the Fed responds quickly by lowering rates, then Bitcoin's going to frickin' rip. Right. It might reignite another financial bubble. So I think the short answer is it really depends on the sort of the funds months, you probably. have. Well, it the really... funds you have lined up, it depends on what your forecast for Fed policy is. And it also depends on your risk tolerance and your dependencies. So if you're in your mid-20s and you're recently married and you and your partner are dead set on getting a house and things go great and you maybe take a more unconventional approach and have invested in like a Bitcoin ETF or something and things go great and you end up having a larger down payment, lower mortgage costs, you know, your your partner is probably going to be impressed. But if things go the other way and you're like, hey, honey, we actually have to wait a year to buy a house because the Bitcoin price is down, that could be a problem, right? In that happy relationship. So there's a lot to think about. The positive there is DPG can just keep listening and we'll give them We'll give him the reason it didn't go up and uh, he'll have his excuse. Actually, I would bet. So DPG, my last answer on this. It's like, say you subscribe to my newsletter and I wrote an investment newsletter. I would take about a thousand words to say, we're going to know what direction this thing's going by Q2, I believe. And what I mean by that is, I think we're going to have a pretty good sense how likely the Fed is going to ease or not by Q2. And if Fed ease, price go up. And I think we're going to know that. So I don't think you have to wait that long at this point in time. In the meantime, you might just, you know, look at what investment seems like it's going to pay off the best for you. Keep an eye out for the news we're going to get over the next few weeks from the Fed and then adjust accordingly. That'd be my strat. Thank you, everybody, though, who boosts in. We did get some boosts uh, below the uh, cutoff line, which is I think around 2000 sats these days. But we read them all, especially these days. Shout out also to uh, John, who sometimes has the automated boosts out there. Uh, we had nine boosters, nine, 51,000 sats, 713 total, 51,713. Um, yeah. You know what we ought to do, Dad? What's that? When it's like below 100,000, we ought to just not edit. You ought to just publish it. <laughs> just, here you go. <laughs> here you go. If you want it edited, you got to boost it. You got to boost more. I yeah. tease. Thank you, everybody who boosts. I know it's crazy out there right now. Not everybody can boost every single week, but we appreciate those who take the time to boost in and support the show. And let me know if you're over there in the UK, how this is working out for you, if you're already a, a hodler and now you have these new rules. And of course, we're always looking for your input on the topics you'd like to hear more of or less of. Those are always bits of feedback that help the show. And it's a good way to support us in multiple ways. You can always spread the word too. Word of mouth is the only kind of advertising that works for podcasts. What kind of maniac is going to listen to a podcast this long unless you tell them it's worth it? That's also a great way to support the show. Thank you, everybody. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 12th, 2020. For I've been your Bitcoin Dan, and I'm here remotely as always with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time. Bye.